Happy Saturday. It is March 13th, 2021. Finally, we're approaching the Ides of March, Michael, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, a deputy editor here at Airmail. Welcome, Ashley. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. I think we can be officially confident that spring has arrived in New York City. What are your thoughts? 65 degrees this week. It was great. I took a nice walk. Everyone was out in the park, Washington Square yesterday. So yeah, it's here. I see little snow crocuses coming up. Optimism in the air, right? Optimism in the air. I spent $100 on produce at Italy without blinking an eye. That's how you know we're in a better mood. Wow, that's good. Okay. I'm exaggerating. <laughs> what, do you, what do you get for $100? Zucchini? I'm exaggerating just a little bit. No, I bought some figs and I didn't realize they were like $6.99 each. And then I got some radicchio. I mean, it was absurd. It's like $24.99 a pound for lettuce. Only in New York, kids. Only in New York. But um, no, we're all feeling good. Uh, you know, outdoor dining is bustling as it's never bustled before. And I'm starting to feel like, you know, we're coming out of this pandemic. Finally. Yeah, I'm thinking of going to Alaska. <laughs> Why? I just saw today that they're now lowered the age limit for vaccines to anyone over 16 years of age. I'm still waiting. So I think maybe I'll just fly to Anchorage this weekend and see what I can get. Michael, I'm not letting you go to Anchorage to get this shot, okay? Because I, as you know, I got a haircut yesterday for the first time since July. I know Ashley got a haircut yesterday because at our 1130 editorial Zoom call to check in, there's Ashley shows up and wet hair, you know, foils about to go in, but she's got the mask on. And it's like, is that her? Is that, that's not her. his big chandelier in the background. Like, that's not her living. What? what? And it's like, she's in, in the chair. She's like, yeah, guys, I'm sorry. Emergency haircut. What is an emergency haircut? Okay. An emergency haircut is what happens when you have not had a haircut since the summer and your hair in the back is so long and you wear turtlenecks and coats that it becomes this big matted knot that you have to go to the salon to have them detangle. That's where I was, Michael. It really was urgent, okay? I had to get it cut. It was it was it was a serious problem. I could not run a brush through it. It was uh, you know. Anyway, so I got it taken care of. Anyway, but Michael, this was my big revelation from the salon other than like, wow, this feels really great to be here. I think you and I might be the last people in New York City that have not had the vaccine because every single person at the salon had had it. It was absurd. I could not believe it. It was like, you know, my stylist 22-year-old assistant was like, oh yeah, I got it at the Javits Center. I'm like, what is going on? There's so many pre-existing conditions that are being cited uh, as an excuse to get this vaccine. I'm not judging. More power to you all. Uh, the more people that are vaccinated, the safer I feel. And as a result, like I had a kind of stress-free experience getting a haircut. So there you go. So in other big news, the Harry well, and we, Meghan interview. Yeah, we've got a great issue this week. We've got the Harry and Meghan interview with Stu Heritage. He'll be on later, right? Oh, love Stu. Rely on him for all of our insight into everything going on in the Okay. Can I just talk about the interview, my favorite part of the interview, before we get to Stu? Please do. Okay. Number one, all I could think about watching it was Ashley, because you and Harry and Meghan, what do you have in common now? We love chickens. You all have chicken coops in your backyard. You're, I know, you, were, you were ahead of the trend. I know, Michael. We were. It's going to be a thing now. And like, look, mine are not rescue, though. Like, I'm not rescuing chickens from the Tyson processing plant. Like, these are chickens that are bred to be pets. So, once again, Harry and Meghan are really at the vanguard of this. But, yes, I do see, like, a chicken boom happening soon. Okay. All The other thing all I could think of of watching the interview was, you know who loves a metaphor? 
Peter Morgan. And I'm so, when they watch it, like, this was like, this was like getting, you know, an extra half season of The Crown. If you were going through Crown Withdrawal, you get this little drop on Sunday of like, here's a special bridge edition of, and, and it's like, all I can think of is like, if I'm writing The Crowns, whatever season eight this is, like just the, the image of Harry and Meghan in a cage with chickens talking to a reporter and there's third standing there and in a cage like like that's all you need you just could you could just have a whole episode of of them standing in a cage holding eggs and rescue chickens it's it's the whole metaphor right there so there you go <laughs> i'll take it well moving on from chickens michael should we move on to scientology sex or anna sorkin wow it's like a spin that i get to pick it's like a game show yeah choose your favorite uh, it's ladies choice <laughs> ladies choice all right well because we know we love paris and everyone loves paris i think we should probably talk about madame valerie okay so she is the proprietor of an establishment called the chandel which is the candles in english and it's basically the coolest swingers club in Paris. Now, Michael and I should probably preface this by saying we are not swingers, although we do know some. Uh, so we can't really we, comment we on the qual. We do. We do. We'll talk about that wow. offline. We'll talk about like, that offline. Okay. Like people at airmail that I don't know about? No comment. No, no, no. Not at airmail, Michael. Not at airmail. Okay. Okay. All okay. Right. All right. Not As far as we know, none of our airmail colleagues are swingers. If they were, we would support. Okay. But moving on, we're going to talk about the Chandel in Paris, where Valerie Arvaux has is overseeing what she describes as a porno chic temple for the Beaumont of the city. And she has published a memoir about this club that she opened three decades ago. And it's right off of Avenue de l'Opera, which is not too far from the Ritz. Uh, and she it's called Inside Les Chandelles. And it's just a real treat for anyone who's looking for a bit of excitement. She says, so this is really frequented by politicians, magistrates, TV personalities, a lot of well-known people. And it really gets at the heart of this Gallic hedonism. French, as we said last week, the French do food and illicit behavior better than anyone else. And this is a place where that comes together. Uh, she describes the sex piece of it as being the cherry on the cake. But um, the rest of it is sort of akin to an eyes wide shut experience with a lot of good looking people looking and acting seductive. Yeah, my favorite detail, she claims that, you know, of course, there's a dress code. You know, women can't wear pants. Men can't wear jeans. And, you know, apparently one night a man reported to be Mick Jagger showed up in jeans and he was turned away. Why would you turn away Mick Jagger from a sex club? I mean, you know. Maybe she, maybe she didn't recognize him, although how could you not? How could you not? He's so small. Yeah, I'd watch a TV series about this, by the way. Mm, no? Yeah, maybe. Maybe? All right, well, unfortunately... <laughs> is this too prurient for you, Michael? Yeah, I just get, you know, I don't know what's going to happen and, you know, someone's going to track me. I don't know. All right, well, go back to watching Call My Agent, okay? That'll be your French drama comedy for you for a while. Yes, dear. <laughs> all right. So, uh, all right, Michael, what else do we have? Speaking of exclusive clubs, it's exclusive, but it's not really a club you want to join. We've got a very funny piece this week by Nimrod Kamer, who gives you six ways to sneak into Donald Trump's hideous Florida compound Mar-a-Lago if you wanted to go down there and sort of annoy him a little bit. And uh, as Nimrod says, you know, there's various ways to do it. But, you know, my favorite, he goes through six of them. And he reminds you, if you do happen to get in and you do happen to get into the dining room, you will be reminded when you uh, go there that if Donald Trump walks in, you almost clap for him. So anyway, 
that's one of the requirements of that club. But he, my favorite one, you know, you can always just go to the front gate with a big, thick manila envelope and say you've got dirt on Hillary Rodham Clinton. And that's, <laughs> in, that's your next best thing for a golden ticket to get in. So <laughs> speaking of Melania and Trump and I don't know, puts me in the mind of grifters. Ooh, Michael, I have to say I'm offended, okay? Why? Anna Sorokin was sprung from prison. She's back on the scene in New York. She's living at a hotel in Nomad. And she did not take me up on my invitation to have dinner at the Waverly Inn. What gives? Your favorite grifter gal. My She's favorite back. grifter. We've got, a, we've got a great piece this week. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, I didn't get access to her, but Laura Pullman did, thank goodness. And Laura visits Anna on the set of a photo shoot. And we get a little update on her life right now. And boy, it's even better than it was in prison, it turns out. She is living in Manhattan. So she waltzes in. She's wearing Celine sunglasses. She's got a black fur coat wrapped around her shoulders. And she's carrying a Rick Owens handbag. Like, let's do the math right here. It's probably a $5,000 outfit at least. But she still seems to be in very high spirits, Michael. She says, my ability to handle stress is pretty high. And I don't know where it comes from. I was just always like this. So there is something of a sociopath quality about her, which makes her just all the more interesting. And so the money that she has comes from the rights to her life story. It was paid for by Netflix, which is coming out with a drama about her later this year. It's called Inventing Anna, and it stars Julie Garner, who is known for Ozark and the Americans. Talk about just owning who you are. Like, there's no there's no remorse here, right? There's no shame. It's just like, here I am. Where, where do you it's, want me? It's very Trumpian. Like, you'll get what you get, and you don't get upset. That's something I say to my kids all the time, but that's kind of like who she is, right? You know, she's she doesn't apologize. And again, like, it's proof that in the U.S., there are limitless opportunities to monetize a fascinating story. Michael, have you heard of Atlantic College? This is not Trump University. Atlantic College. I didn't hear of Atlantic College until Joseph Bullmore wrote about it this week, which he opens our eyes to. It's basically known as hippie Hogwarts. Who knew? Who knew? And it's sort of gotten the news because recently another royal, not a British royal, but a, a Princess Leonor of Spain went there. And it's in a 12th century castle out in the UK. It's become sort of this egalitarian Eton, but it's really sort of become where the global elites send their kids to remind them they're not so elite. And so we've got Joseph Bullmore to talk about it. Well, Joseph, tell us everything we need to know about Hippie Hogwarts. Yeah, it's a great kind of name it's got, this nickname. It first, I think, came across my transom, so to speak, a few weeks ago when a friend told me they were thinking about putting their child down on the waiting list for this school in the kind of the Welsh wilderness on this this cliff top really in um, Wales which isn't necessarily where you expect most English people to necessarily want to send their children away to and they told me that people called it the hippie Hogwarts so I kind of looked into it and it's quite a remarkable place really it's probably important to say that, that the British public school has never had its stock lower than it is right now Eton is kind of beset as I think I said in the piece by these woke wars and a lot of the traditional kind of bastions of public schools are um, are either kind of going bankrupt in the pandemic or are in the throes of kind of historic sexual abuse cases. So somewhere like this, which has a kind of slightly more liberal hippie ethos, seems to appeal to a lot of parents. And um, I quote, I think, someone in the piece saying that it's now going to be beset by pushy parents desperately trying to batten down the uh, drawbridge and get their kids in. But it's an incredible place. Yeah, it's literally in a 12th century castle. It, it fits the hippie Hogwarts billing. And it truly is hippie-ish in its intentions as well. I think there are 350 kids in the in the two-year course 
or from over kind of 90 nationalities. And the whole thing is about cultural understanding um, and getting along and everyone having a good time. So it's this this crazy melting pot and this kind of idealistic um, little corner of Wales where everyone seems to get along just fine, unlike the rest of the world. Well, but you, you've, you've got, I mean, it's the hippie Hogwarts and yet yeah. and like for all the sort of kumbaya you're painting, let's just let's just state a couple of facts. It cost <laughs> $48,000 a year to go there. Princess Leonor of Spain recently was sort of enrolled. And you, as you sort of say in your piece, it's where the global elites send their kids to remind them they're not so elite, right? Exactly. That's the sort of the hippie version of it. And you get sort of like the, um, the proto-plutocrats sharing dorm rooms with Syrian refugees, right? So that's the sort of the, the the mix that they yeah. do uh, sort of uh, cultivate there, right? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. They've also got this thing called, I think it's an EDW, EDW, EDW the express, ex- excessive displays of wealth. Which which they banned from there, right? They banned, so yeah. If you walk in with a Rolex or a Balenciaga handbag, it's taken away from you. They, it's just to make everyone feel comfortable, the kids tell me. And actually, the children, even after they've got their things taken away, they, they tell me that they prefer it because you suddenly don't have have to worry so much about keeping up with the Joneses. It's um, it's kind of liberating in a way. I think we should all get rid of EWDs everywhere, really. Okay, define EWD. E- EDW. Uh, sorry, EDW. EDW. Uh, EDW is excessive display of wealth. So it's anything from you know new trainers to a to a shiny jacket, or even getting an expensive food shop or delivery delivered to your dorm room. Um, essentially, yeah, they they encourage people to mix with people who were from the furthest background away from their own to foster this kind of sense of global cultural exchange. So I guess there's probably nothing more alienating if you are a Syrian refugee at the school to be bunked up with um, a Russian plutocrat in, in with a Chanel handbag. Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, Atlantic College, as it's formally known, you know, it's very many of the uh, English, uh, European royalty have gone there, the princes of Belgium, uh, king of uh, the Netherlands, Princess Riyadh of Jordan. And as sort of storied as its setting is, it also was only founded in 1962 as well, right? Yeah, it's relatively young. I mean, in the, in the canon of British public schools, it's pretty adolescent, but it's, it's got this heritage, I suppose, for, as you say, people who want to remind their children, especially if they're from kind of European royal dynasties, that actually the real world isn't like a palace. And obviously this is now in the news again, because Princess Leonor, as you say, of Spain is the, the latest edition. She'll join in September. And I, for the Spanish royal family, it's probably not a bad idea. They, as we know, have had quite a year with, um, I don't know, difficult times with her grandfather, King Juan Carlos, of course, and maybe a bit of normality, getting away from that, getting out of that bubble won't be bad for, for her. Certainly can't be a bad thing for their reputation. All right. Well, if they start taking older students, Joseph, just let us know. Michael and I definitely need a way to pass the time. Yeah, me, yeah, too. Or, me or, too. Or I'm happy to be a visiting professor there, you know, just... Uh, Absolutely. You know. What would be your specialism, Michael? What would you teach? Bad behavior. Bad behavior. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, I'll sign up. <laughs> You'd actually be my guest lecturer. Thank you very much. Emeritus lecturer. Professor Emeritus exactly. is behaving badly. I could do that. That's for sure. Amazing. Okay, cool. So, all right, Michael, let's not mince words here. Okay, let's get to the biggest story of the week. Harry, Meghan, and Oprah. We could break it down for you all day long, but we're doing better than that because you've got Stu Heritage here, a writer at large based in Kent, the United Kingdom, and he's going to talk to us all about what is going on. And welcome, Stu. Well, Stu, we have a lot to go over today, okay? Obviously, the big news is the Harry and Meghan interview on Oprah, which you wrote about for Airmail in brief 
How did that play out in the UK? Really hugely. It's still kind of dominating the news cycle over here, which is, I guess it's not to be completely expected, unexpected. It's anything to do with the royal family here, just sort of people go nuts for. And when it's sort of, this has touched on so many different topics, there's sort of gender and race and all sorts of all sorts of the big subjects that make everything blow up. How is it there? How is it in America? Wait, because like, who cares? in america (laughs) you'd be surprised still it's the talk of the country just like it is there i think but why that doesn't make that be like if the if the queen of i don't know belgium did something did an interview and i'm not sure people would care that much here no no one here knows that there is a queen of belgium still but (laughs) (laughs) i think it's also kind of the perfect concoction right for the 21st century where you've got you've got the son of diana Mm. you've got he married a quote-unquote actress we everyone's been for the last two three years been sort of mainlighting the crown they've all been like educated in palace intrigue and backstory uh and come to see this thing as you know it is the royal family but it also is a family drama right and now they see it's like okay we've all we've all we've all binged well now we want a new season and guess what here comes (laughs) here comes a new season like like an, an installment of it right away and it actually says like man they live in california now with oprah down the road from other movie stars and it's so it's just this booyah base of of just like the perfect stuff right so and don't forget like all americans i think even though we threw out the shackles of monarchies do we still <laughs> love it we still love it well we might be throwing off the shackles of monarchy soon if it keeps going like this that will be exciting we'll get to take lessons from you well yeah so i mean yeah well, I mean, the question is like can the royal family be cancelled i well i think they can but i don't think they will i'm kind of just sort of excited just to see how it plays out if the royal family did get overthrown i'd be kind of sort of into it i think no (laughs) do you never (laughs) is there been a poll recently on what percentage of people in the uk are leaning republic and would would want to do away with the monarchy the the full interview wasn't shown here until monday uh evening so Tuesday morning, yesterday right. morning, there was a lot of uh, abolish the monarchy was trending on Twitter very briefly. Um, but now it's kind of it's gone back. I was just before I started talking to you, in fact, they, the um, YouGov, the polling company, was just um, published sort of approval ratings for individual members of the royal family. And the Queen is still at something like 80%. So I think while she's still around, there's not a chance it's going to go anywhere. And where is Charles? He's he's sort of number four or five. He's quite a way down. He's never really recovered from um, the Diana <laughs> stuff, I think. there is there's, There was some movement to try and leapfrog him and almost get William to take to be the next king. But even his his uh, ratings have sort of plummeted a bit because I think it's because of the the, the unnamed the unnamed racist that came up in the um, in the interview. No, they def- it's definitely not um, the Queen. It's definitely not Prince Philip and all the rest. Like no, I don't think anyone wants to commit to approving <laughs> approving to a member of the, the royal family until they know exactly who it is. Well, don't you think we're going to figure that out soon, Sue? I mean, like oh yeah, yeah, really soon. As soon as you say somebody did this but I'm not going to tell you who it is it's just it turns into a game of guess who the, the one clue well to the two clues the two people who it isn't and also Megan said it would be damaging which rules out sort of 90% of the royal family because they have got nothing to lose so it's right. it's it's I think it's lots of people there's a princess Michael of Kent who is uh, her views are quite uh, I don't want to say racist but she wants she wants war a a brooch of a sort of colonial uh, black woman when she met Megan, which people took as a sort of a sign that of just a horribly misjudged sort of tonal thing. So some people were saying to her, but what? How could it be damaging for her? Because she's just she's 
Princess Michael of Kent. No one's heard of her. I've barely heard of her, and I live in Kent. <laughs> How does this play out? Well, the royal fa- I think the royal family themselves did quite a good job. They just put out a statement, the Queen put out a statement a couple of days ago, just saying, oh, that was bad, wasn't it? We'll deal with it from here. And it's just sort of, I think it's taken a lot of the heat out. If they'd have retaliated and made it worse... I think it would have been a, a prolonged cold war between the two factions. How does Meghan look now in the UK? Is she Has this helped her approval ratings or has it made her situation worse? It's apparently very, very generational. Younger people, very sort of strongly, because I think what, cleverly she's she managed to sort of root her complaints in sort of issues that... That, that are quite, you know, that everybody talks about. So the younger people who sort of feel like they're more aligned with that sort of issue, they can put themselves, I think, on Meghan's side a lot more easily than older people who are more sort of um, mono- monarchist by sort of nature. But then, I don't know, if you're, if you're only popular with older people, like the monarchy seems to be, then that's not a particularly good sign for the future. Yeah, so they horrifically misjudged this, right? I mean, there was a real opportunity with Meghan that the royal family had to appeal to a younger generation, and yet they managed to isolate and alienate her in such a horrific way, it seems, that they've, you know, they've lost that opportunity now. It went so wrong so quickly. Going back to something you said earlier, the, the crown having been on has perfectly trained all of us to be hyper-aware of the sort of the situation the royal family are in. So when Harry and Meghan were saying that they felt trapped and that Charles feels trapped, if they'd have said that without everyone watching sort of 40 hours of television about how miserable these people are all the time, I don't I don't think it would have it would have come across as well. It's it's a real perfect storm. Peter Morgan definitely like laid the foundation. Everyone knows like, oh, it's not, you know, 25, 30 years ago when Diana's doing her interview. It's, you, you know, it's just her word against this mystery that we'd have no access to. Right. But now we've got this access to scenes in our head of uh, Elizabeth telling her sister, Margaret, no, you can't marry who you love. And we've got scenes in our head of Diana going down and binging on on moose in the pantry and then with her eating disorder and wandering around and can't even get her, her the queen on the phone to ask for help. So you've got all these images in your mind and like, well, yeah, I, I could see what Megan's saying now. So it's it's very it's a very different context than when when Diana does her interview, right? Completely. And back then as well, I think the royal family has always been able to trade on on sort of mystery and secrecy, and that you, they're these huge sort of they're sort of elevated beyond celebrity, and they're just these figures chosen by God to represent the country. But little by little, Little with things like the crown, with things like the internet, especially sort of Harry and Meghan's willingness just to talk about things. The I think the royal family has to just fundamentally change how it interacts with the world. Like, where do you see this all playing out for the two of them? That's really interesting. I, well, I, it's, I think especially for Harry, it's going to be difficult because that's his identity. Is he's he's a thirty-five now, and that's thirty-five years of a prince. A literal prince, not he hasn't got a proper job, doesn't need to earn money, and I think just being standing on his own is going to be a really big culture shock for him. Already in the interview, he was complaining about not uh, being cut off financially from his family, and and you sort of think, well, you wanted independence. And you left because you wanted independence. And now you're complaining because you have to earn money like everyone else in the world. That didn't, it wasn't the, the most sort of uh, sympathetic thing I think he could have said. I agree. And I also found it rather rich, ironically speaking, when he said, you know, when he mentioned that he had to take the deal with Netflix and Spotify because, you know, he had to pay for his security. Like sitting hmm. in the $10 million mansion in Montecito, I'm thinking, okay, how much is security a year for someone like you? $500,000? Like, couldn't you have just yeah. bought a cheaper house if it were really that? important but like we're american 
we get brand building. We like to monetize things. We understand this. There's no shame in that game. And it's very clear that that's what they have intentions to do, right? With Archwell, like they want to make things and sell them and become a brand. But my question is, is like, you know, fast forward five years, it's Christmas. The royal family's at Sandringham, like, and Harry and Meghan are doing like a personal appearance to sell a line of towels at Nordstrom, right? Or something <laughs> like that. Is that what this is going to look like? Is that the end goal? Well, I mean, that's definitely the risk is that the, 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 heat they've got or they've had this last year from leaving will just dissipate and they'll just become another pair of celebrities. Look, I think that I've said from the beginning, I think the the guy, Harry, is living with all the echoes and he alluded to them in the interview of his mother, right? And what he saw happen to her, that she tried mm-hmm. to step away, she was lost. And, you know, that's his mother. And then he sees his wife with the same problems coming at her. And so he steps out. I think it's, look, I think, I think what he has going for him, which is he has a certain mystique, which he always will i came away from that interview when she like if that guy ever wrote the book mm-hmm. you know just really wrote the book that was but it was my frustration with oprah like he would start to talk and she cut him off a few times yeah. and i wanted to like just reach across the tv and say you have a at your point Stu, an actual living royal who has true access to life behind the veil and he starts to tell her something and then she's like blah, blah, blah. I'm like <laughs> Shh, like just listen to what he's going to tell you because anything he says is is a glimpse inside of that behind the veil right so I think that's why we're always going to be fascinating because like he did leave just like you know his great uncle or whatever the relationship is with Edward you know um, yeah and and once you step out there's a certain power oh yeah because yeah the whole thing is strung together with secrecy and magic and it just takes even the, the tiny thing that Megan said about having to hand over a passport uh, sort of upon joining the royal family and she has or she never saw it until she left that's just little details like that that nobody knows about they yeah, all accumulate yeah. and then it kind of it, it can sort of tear the whole thing apart I think and the weird power in stepping out is you actually have the power so then the onus is on the palace rather than them is love enough Stu? that's the question <laughs> Oh, that's the question for everything. Well, they seem like they're really, they really do like each other a lot, which, I mean, I've grown up with watching different royal marriages and that is very rare. There's, they're always, and she's not, she's not directly related to him. And that's, that's a big plus as well, because that hasn't happened for a while. So, <laughs> in that respect, good for them. Well done. Michael, do you have anything else for Stu? No, it's a delight as always, Stu. Oh, it's so nice to talk to you both. We love talking to you. Thank you for your great piece this week. Oh, thank you very much. It's always nice to write for you. All right, Stu. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So I know you watched Oprah this weekend, but what can you recommend that you also watched that we should watch? I mean, what do you got? What do you got? Is something new besides two hours of Oprah? You know what, Michael? I can't because I'm still watching an old French TV show this weekend and reading a 20-year-old book by Anne Patchett. So please give us something new to look forward to. Well, I can tell you something not to look forward to. Here's something I'm not going to recommend. I'm trying to think of a funny joke. I'll tell you because there is no funny jokes in this movie. I actually watched the first half hour of it and about every three minutes, I kept turning to Brooke and said, say, would say, this is a comedy right? This was the worst movie I've seen in a long time. I turned it off after 30 minutes. It is called Coming to America 2. So, oh, you saw that? My mom liked that, Michael. Oh, uh, I would say run away, don't walk away from your TV. It was so bad. It was so bad. Maybe it gets better in the next hour and a half, but what did your mom like about it? Well, I'm very sorry to hear that, Michael. Did your Netflix algorithm recommend that? It's on Amazon and whatever... Amazon paid thinking they were going to get so I don't know it was it was bad so well, my Netflix algorithm recommended two weeks notice with Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant I 
highly recommend that. Okay, I'll put that on the list because ever since I watched Bridget Jones' Diary, I'm in for those, in for that ride, whatever ticket that is, I'll get it. If it's a romantic comedy from 2002, Michael, you're in. The other thing I'd recommend this week, we have a good inside story in our books column, a book section by Glenn Frankel and his new book, Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and Making of a Dark Classic. It's a great look at uh, at the seminal film, which as I always remind people, was originally rated X when it came out at the box office, when she got pushed down to an R. But great little piece this week by Glenn from his book, where he talks about one thing Dustin Hoffman has in common with Marcello Mastriani because of Midnight Cowboy and Anne Roth, talk, the costume designer for the film, talks about about when she was designing the costumes and thinking about the costumes, she thought, what would Razzo Rizzo, who was an Italian kid from the Bronx, what would you, who would be your hero in 1969, 1970? And she thought, well, of course, this down on his luck guy is going to want to look like Marcello Mastriani in La Dolce Vita. And so that was the white suit that he wears in there. So it's a great book and a great look at, at, at sort of the behind the scenes of a making of a, of, a, of a real movie that changed Hollywood. Michael, we have a very great life to talk about this week. And just talking about, talking about it, I'm starting to get choked up. We lost one of our own this week. We lost Richard David Story, who was a wonderful writer and a gifted editor. And we were so fortunate to have him as our travels are here at Airmail for the last two years, um, ever since we launched. And he passed away very suddenly. And I mean, he was really a one of a kind editor, Michael. You knew him. I, I was so fortunate to be his editor here at Airmail and get to work with him all the time. And you've known him forever. Uh, why don't you take us through sort of how you first met him? Yeah, I uh, I met Richard through uh, his wife wife, uh, Jennifer Crandall, uh, when she was the photo director at GQ when I was working. And uh, he had recently left Vogue, where he had been uh, the arts editor. And I did not know, but she said, Jennifer came to my office one day and she said, Lovey, Richard has just become the new editor-in-chief of Departures Magazine. And he needs he needs writers, good writers. I thought maybe you guys would get along. And so I went over and I met with Richard. And, you know, he was immediately assigned me these stories that sort of opened my eyes to greater things. He he sent me on uh, to learn how to do falconry. He sent me uh, boar hunting in Tuscany. He sent me to uh, paddle a gondola around the circumference of Venice. Um, and he was just, what was wonderful about Richard was in depth of knowledge. He was probably one of the great conversationalists. Uh, you had a lunch with him. It wouldn't go one hour, it went all day. And um, he sort of, he just was so generous and uh, so much fun to be around. And I think, you know, you, you sort of move through the world wherever you are. And it seems like Richard knew everyone. He, he loved the life he led and uh, he loved sharing what that life was with the people in his life. And not just the people in his life, Michael, his readers. I mean, he was an editor who was really devoted to, you know, the people on the other side of the page. And I was a, a dedicated Departures reader when he was its editor. And I was planning a, a honey, my honeymoon. And, you know, there were there was a 250 word story a great, about a great travel agent in Chile that he had written about. And just based on the strength of Richard's word alone, I booked this trip and I had the most incredible trip of my life. And I wrote to him, didn't even know him, but I wrote to him when I got back and I said, you know, editor to editor, I just want to thank you for, for the integrity and the passion that you have for your job. Like, it's so valuable as a reader to be able to trust the advice that you get from someone. And that started off this lovely correspondence that we had. And, you know, again, he didn't even know me. Uh, I was just another reader to him at that time. But, you know, I ended up going to Turkey about a year later. And of course, he insisted upon giving me the names of the very best guides. You need a, one for the Asian side and you need a totally different one for the European side. And as always, Richard was writing 
right about everything. And he had this passion and zest for life uh, that came across in, in every word that he wrote. And I feel so fortunate that when we've launched Airmail, you know, he came on board right away and he was giving that same incredible service and insight to our readers all the way through. And, you know, we have we had lunch with him many times. There's no one more delightful to spend a meal with. There's no one more exciting. There's no one more excitable. You know, he he should have had a podcast because he was always talking about the books that he was reading, the theater that he was working on, the projects that were interesting to him. He was really a testament to the art of living well, and we will miss him dearly here. And uh, thank goodness he still lives on to us in so many ways through his beautiful work and his wonderful family. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, the word I would use for him is enthusiasm. He just was so enthusiastic about discovery and sharing them. Um, and you're right, I just was thinking, when I was going to propose to Brooke, I called Richard and I said, I'm going to go to Italy, I'm going to propose to Brooke, where should I do that? And with Miss Adam Bissy said, my favorite hotel, you've got to go there, Listeria News in Positano, I'm going to call the owner right now. And he called the Sorsale family and went there, proposed to Brooke and he was right. And it's just like you trusted him with all things like that. So touched so many lives. He just had so many incredible stories and, and knew so many wonderful people and was truly so beloved. And he had a, a real gift for putting people together to, you know, introducing you to someone that you thought you would like. He did that for me so many times and wonderful people have come into my life and in the life of so many others because of Richard. He was really a one of a kind guy and uh, the, New York is just not the same without him. For sure. So yeah, our, our thoughts with Jennifer, his wife and Zach, his son. All right, Michael. Well, on that relatively somber note. We wish you all a beautiful spring of a gorgeous week and we look forward to seeing you again next Saturday. And Michael, uh, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Emily Davis is our CMO and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining.